Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, but especially the joy you experience when you share God's love with others. As we do each and every week, I begin with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination. It may be to say something about uh, the topic for the evening. It may be that I want to say something about uh, our guest sometimes. A man cried out, who goes there? The man was startled by Jesus' words when he came around the bend. He could not see no one at all, for there were no stars in the sky to light his path in the darkness of the night. The response was, it is I, it is I. Jesus said, come warm yourself. The men looked at once at one another, his disciples, for the fire was not giving off much heat. Simon said, I have heard much about you and decided to seek you out. Peter responded, you are a foolish child. Do you not know the dangers of coming here by yourself at night along a path you do not know? Jesus just smiled and said, along a path few of us know. Simon nodded and said, I have eaten no bread and I have nothing to share with you. Jesus replied, but you do. You have much to share. You have questions and answers, and I pray that you will be able to answer them for those who ask them. Simon said, Master, truly, you are filled with great wisdom. This I know. What are the secrets of life? What should guide how we live? Peter just rolled his eyes at John, and Jesus said, There are many secrets, many mysteries in life. The life of man is many times like you who were brave enough and strong-willed to walk in the dead of night without a single star to light your way. But only the Father knows what is in your heart. Simon was not satisfied with Jesus' answer and said, Master, you speak about life and its mysteries, and yet it is hard to understand what you are teaching. Does it apply to all men and women, even to a child? Jesus answered, everyone has his or her own path to follow in life. Many times that path is filled with sorrow and pain, and still there is joy and happiness. Many times that path is cut short and you must return to the Father's home. You may breathe only for an instant when you leave your mother's womb before you return to the Father. At other times, you grow weary, old, tired, and long to return home. Then Jesus looked down and placed a few more twigs on the fire, stirred it, looked up at the sky, And almost like a miracle, the stars began to appear. He said, The light of the fire and the stars reminds us that we are inspired by others. The Father never allows us to remain in complete darkness. Remember his words are like the stars 
and this fire. They keep us warm with hope and an inner peace that comes from knowing we are never alone. A story of faith and imagination. Our guest this evening writes um, in the introduction to his latest book titled The Seven Deadly Sins, How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Era. He writes, We live in a world where the definition of sin has morphed, has been contorted to fit our own needs and desires. Good, quote-unquote, has come a long way from the rigidness of the Ten Commandments and is as malleable today as the plastic that seems to represent the age. We make of it what we want. And if that is not good enough, it can either be melted down and reshaped or merely discarded like so many plastic goods, only to be replaced by this year's model. We exist at a moment of transition between what was and what could be. We certainly live in an age of potentiality, and what becomes of that potential is entirely up to us. Writing in his final work, the nonfiction Apocalypse in 1929-1930, English novelist D.H. Lawrence argued that it is we ourselves who are responsible for the evil in the world. Quote, Society consists of a mass of weak individuals trying to protect themselves out of fear from every possible imaginary evil, and of course, by their very fear bringing the evil into being. Lawrence laments, quote, Our conscious range is wide, but shallow as a sheet of paper. We have no depth to our consciousness. The price, he says, is boredom. Lawrence's concern was a spiritual wasteland not unlike T.S. Eliot's broken landscape, haunted by the, quote, rattle of the bones and the rock without water, a land wasted of both physical and spiritual fertility. Although my preceding examples are taken from the early 20th century, my thesis is that we are in a similar state in the early 21st century, and that our notions of sin and sinful behavior again merit a serious discussion. The problem is that I don't think it is getting the discussion it demands, mostly due to the tremendous amount of cultural, quote-unquote, noise coming from the Internet, 24-7 news cycles, and the ever-present danger that we might miss out. The cultural malaise that seemed to plague Europe between 1900 and 1950 has now discarded, or excuse me, has now descended on America and by extension the world. These are the words of Professor David Solomon, Ph.D. He is the Director of Undergraduate Research and Creative Activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. He has been a professor of English for almost 20 years. Professor David Solomon, welcome to Amplify. Father Ron, so good to be with you. It's so good to have you. When, when I've really enjoyed a book, I can't wait to talk to, uh, to, to, the, to the author. 
Um, and I, I wish that I, uh, I could read the whole book almost to the audience. That becomes impossible. <laughs> so I ask you to help me through the important points, even though I have thoroughly read it. But tell us a little bit about your opening story in the preface of why the 1956 film, The Ten Commandments, for which you eventually knew the entire script by heart, my sister has done that with a, a lot of different things, provided you with a mystical grounding for a relationship one might have with divinity regardless of the spiritual tradition. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, as you know from reading the book, I, and I'll share with your listeners, I grew up in the Bronx, New York, um, raised a Jew, a cultural Jew, um, more than uh, an explicitly religious Jew. So uh, we did go to temple. I was bar mitzvahed. We went on the high holy days. We had a seder every year, uh, but we weren't um, we weren't dogmatic in any sense. But the story of the Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston uh, film from the 1950s, just incredibly uh, drawing to me. That story, for some reason, really really attracted me as a young boy, and, and I would watch it every year on TV when it was on around the, the Passover Easter holiday. And uh, as, as I say, I mean, I, I think I, I memorized it word for word, and the story in the book that you're alluding to is uh, it was finally going to be shown on the big screen in a theater in the Bronx, and so I, I begged my father to take me to, to go see it. And we went and, and, and got our popcorn and sat down in the theater and the credits rolled and it began and it turned out it was dubbed in Spanish. Uh -huh. um, it, it, it didn't make much difference anyway, yes. as I say, because I sure. knew it pretty much word for word. But that, um, the, the, the mysticism of, of divinity, the mysticism of, of our relationship with whatever we call divinity, mm -hmm. I think really always interested me from a very young age. Um, and so much so that, that I ended up in, in graduate school um, publishing on mysticism and studying Christian mysticism and being really intrigued by medieval Catholic mysticism in particular. Um, so I think there, there, there's something about that story of the Ten Commandments, of, of, the, of a law being given by the divinity to the people with the expectation that they would follow it, that really it just I, I found just absolutely uh, amazing. Mm -hmm. How is it that your book, as you write, is an attempt to reconcile your upbringing with religious and secular notions of sin? Yeah. Well, I, as I say, I was raised a Jew, and, and I was a, a very um, faithful Jew as, as a young boy, uh, so much so that, that, that people in our, our circle in the Bronx thought I would be a rabbi eventually, um, something that a, a friend of mine a couple of years ago noted that I, I pretty much did become rabbi, after all, means teacher, um, and that is what I do. Um, but the the... What happened then was, oddly enough, I went to Fordham University, a Jesuit Catholic uh, institution where I got an amazing uh, education from, from some of the Jesuits there in particular. Uh, ended up writing my doctoral dissertation on, on Jesuits in the 16th century and um, became something of a, of a, 
of an expert. I, I, I hesitate to use that word because I'm not sure I'm an expert in anything. In the history of, of the Church and the history of, of Catholic spirituality in particular, and um, what's happened as I've grown older then is I essentially have kind of steered away from being a religious Jew and being more of a of what I would call a cultural Jew. I enjoy a good bagel. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and really, I became very intrigued with Buddhism as, as, a, as a, when I was in my 20s and 30s. And uh, as I think I referred to myself in the book, I, I, I consider myself a Judist as in Jewish and Buddhist, a kind of a combination of the two. And what I've done in a lot of my work and in a lot of my teaching in the classroom as well over the years has been an attempt to understand the importance of spirituality in modern life, something which we have in many ways just uh, lost as a secular culture. And so the book is really an attempt to kind of reconcile my upbringing and my beliefs when I was younger with my beliefs now and my teaching and uh, the way the world is 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 headed, which I think is uh, kind of in a dangerous direction. And we um, experience that personally sometimes. I'm not asking you to for any personal answer, but even in your book you talk about uh, crises of faith have pervaded your life recently. Absolutely. But you also, uh, I don't think we would have to convince anyone of this, that we live in extraordinary times when people are asking, what does truth mean? Um, yeah. When perhaps no one word is more disputed than sin in an increasingly secularized world. Yeah, it's 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 difficult, and and that is oftentimes what what one of the first things that people will ask me when they find out that I wrote this book. They say, "Well, how do you define sin? What is sin?" Um, and in the the introduction to the book, I, I establish that my definition really follows that uh, of Carl Menninger, the, the the psychiatrist who in the nineteen in 1973 wrote a book called "Whatever Became of Sin." And he defines sin as behavior that violates the moral code or the individual conscience or both. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to uh, be placed in the context of an organized religious system. It is more about the way that we treat each other, uh, the way that we treat ourselves, and the way that we treat the world around us. Um, and those are the three things that I have often come back to most often even uh, in the various classes that I teach, in saying that that's really what, what we're about, is, is, is rethinking and reexamining the way we treat each other, the way we treat ourselves, and the way we treat the world around us. Um, you also indicate that no one wants to take the blame when we're talking about sin, quote-unquote, uh, in terms of how we're understanding it. No one wants to take the blame to claim responsibility. And you tell the story about how former President Bill Clinton was asked if he'd ever apologized to uh, Monica Lewinsky for and her family for the affair that he had been engaged in. And you indicated how he, he, he shifted the question to focus on himself as a victim, saying, quote, nobody believes that I got out of that for free. I left the White House $16 million in debt, close quote. Yeah. 
And you you note the the blame shifters often cast themselves in the role of victim in an attempt to absolve themselves of the guilt and their own behavior. And even more than that, it happens in many stories in the Bible, too, doesn't it? Absolutely. And and I I think that is one of the the, the, the crises of our time is is our, our people's unwillingness to take responsibility for their own behavior. Uh, we see it happening almost constantly in, in the news on a daily basis, um, and and it, it, it's a frightening kind of thing. And it's to the point now where, um, you know, I used to joke with my students that everyone is, is Bart Simpson, who always used to say, well, I didn't do it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's not my fault. Um, somebody else did it. Somebody else is responsible. And that story, of course, you know, begins in, in, in Genesis with, uh, you know, when God comes down to Adam and Eve and basically says, what did you do? And, uh, you know, Adam says, you know, well, that woman yeah, you right. gave me, she yeah, brought right. me the fruit and made me eat. Right. And then she goes to Eve and says, what did you do? And she says, well, the serpent came and he beguiled me. Um, uh, you know, there's just that compl- – and my students will often say, well, doesn't God know they're not going to tell – they, that they did it, and I said, "Well, of course he knows that they did it. That God is 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 omniscient in this in this context, but he is hoping, I think, that that his creation is going to take responsibility for their behavior, and sadly, they do not." And uh, you write, "I'll read us out to our break." Discussions of responsibility in philosophical, theological, and indeed mainstream cycles blossomed in the long shadows thrown by the Holocaust. You talk about the Holocaust. You know who's responsible for for that? How could God have let this happen? Um, they ultimately came up with God to let this happen. Yet you could have stopped it, and you didn't. Welcome back to uh, Amplify, where our guest this evening is Professor David Solomon. We're talking about his book, The Seven Deadly Sins, How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Area. And uh, he writes, although the phrase seven deadly sins is largely identified with Christianity, I'd like to suggest in this book that the concept has transcended religion and has been adopted by secular society, that in fact most people could not name the seven sins, nor would they know where or when the idea originated, though they easily invoke the phrase seven deadly sins. Tell us, well, you write that most or much, much of this book comes down to a deceptively simple but long-standing question, what does it mean to lead a good life? That question can be asked in many different ways, but that is a question sure. that's, that is so important, isn't it? It is. I mean, that, that seems to be the central question of, of human being, of our existence, is the question of, of what it means to lead a good life, and, and what do we mean by that? And uh, I think that that has that that is a question which does transcend uh, Christianity, transcends religion uh, in in general. It is it is a question which is more often posed in the in the world of philosophy than it is in in theology, I believe. 
although I, I think it is a, a question which uh, the faithful oftentimes find themselves asking. I know I find myself asking that question almost daily of myself. What does it mean to, to lead a good life? And am I doing it? Um, and I'm not always always sure that I am. Um, and I think that that's probably a good thing, because I think if I was sure that I was, I would probably be guilty of the, the first of the seven deadly sins, which is pride. Yes. And let's, 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 let's talk about that. Uh, let's talk about uh, pride. I could get caught up uh, with the introduction and not get to the seven sins that, that, uh, because I'm, I, I was fascinated by what you've had to say in the book. Let's, tell us, first of, first of all, a little bit about how did the list of sins uh, come into existence? And we're talking here, you write about Gregory the Great is, is said to have originated the concept of the seven deadly sins. Yeah, I mean it's 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 Gregory who we usually looked at look to for the 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 current list, if you will, of the seven deadly sins. Um, pretty much coming out of his uh, work called Moralia on Job, uh, a book which is a, a basically an exegesis of of the Book of Job. But the the concept had been around for a lot longer before that, um, and actually, I think the 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 real um, genesis of it is in the work of, of a monk whose name is Evagrius Ponticus, um, and he's the one who kind of codifies these these sins, and he's writing not for um, for us, not for people in the world. He's writing explicitly for monks, um, and so his his interpretation of those sins is particular to the life of of, uh, of a monastic in the uh, the third century. Tell us a little bit about um, uh, our understanding uh, of how pride has changed, uh, evolved over the centuries. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's funny because we don't think about pride as being sinful behavior today. Um, we constantly are telling children in particular, you know, that you need to be proud of yourself. And that sounds like a perfectly positive thing. Uh, but the thing is that we have to think about what it means actually to be guilty of pride is that you are essentially full of yourself. Mm-hmm. So all of each of the sins in and of themselves, the behavior itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it is important for us as human beings. It is what makes us human. It's what makes us tick that there are aspects of each of us that, that encompass each of the, the, the sins, the behavior that goes into each of the sins. When it becomes a sin is when that behavior is conducted in excess. So it is, it is more about the excessive um, participation in these things than anything else. So pride is essentially thinking that you are better than everybody else. Um, and we, we, when we tell kids to be proud of themselves, we want them to be proud of their behavior and proud of what they've done and proud of their achievements. But we also have to temper that with we don't want to feed their egos too much to the point in which they think that, well, they're just better than everybody else then. Uh, and we've kind of run into that in the last 25 years with several generations of children um, you know, particularly the so, so-called trophy generation who were given a, a participation trophy, a trophy just for participating in something. 
and that made just to make everybody feel good. Um, and so pride has has changed a, a good deal. Of course, um, Adam and Eve, again, going back to Genesis, are guilty of pride in original sin. Uh, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to move up on that chain of being and thought they were better. And um, that is the sin of pride. So it is really the, the first sin, if you will. And it is uh, in all of the discussions of the seven deadly sins, it is always the first one. And in many of the illuminated manuscripts of the Middle Ages, which depict the, the sins as, as a tree, a tree of vices, the uh, pride is the is at the root, is it the first sin itself. You write about um, um, how um, we've changed so much that the 20th century humanity armed with science and technology seems almost um, obsessed with turning itself into God. And then with the start of the 21st century, humanity seems to have turned over much of the responsibility for the mundane tasks of existence to technology. And so there is a sense in which technology uh, itself becomes God. And even even before that, humanity becomes God. Yeah, there, I, I think there's a—we've gone through a kind of a progression, especially in the last— um, let's say, 70 years. Um, I still think in terms of the year 2000. I can't believe it's 2020, so I have to add 20 years yes. to what I'm, what I'm thinking. Of. Um, but I, I think that we we attempted to make ourselves God at first. Um, and if you look at that coming out of the Enlightenment, and what's happened in the last 70 years is we really have turned to technology and made technology our God. And that kind of begins with the, 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 the testing of the A-bomb in the 1940s um, and Oppenheimer's reaction to the, to the initial test, which is that he had become, we become the destroyer. We become, and he was using the Hindu Upanishad text. Um, but now we, we really have seemed to have, have turned over a lot of the responsibility for things to technology. And, and the, the, the easiest, most accessible example is something which is uh, all the, the talk right now and a lot of the, the, uh, the press, which is self-driving cars. Um, why do we need self-driving cars? And, you know, never mind that. It means that we're turning over all the responsibility for driving to the technology. And I'm already seeing um, lawyers in my area here in Virginia advertising mm -hmm. that they're already gearing up for lawsuits when people get into accidents because it's not going to be their fault. It's the technology's fault. Sure. Hmm. Um, and um, you write that uh, while lauding the quote-unquote progress uh, we have made, we have also acknowledged that we have become "Quote unquote dumber," as as a species, right. and the damage done to humans' capacity to remember and be thought hyphen full may be irreparable. Someone showed me a uh, cartoon. I thought immediately of it. Uh, it's a, it's an old Peanuts one. Mm -hmm. Charlie Brown and Lucy are lying on the ground, their heads up against a tree. And she is saying, what happened to this younger generation, Charlie Brown? 
and, and this was uh, an older one, of course, since he died so sure. long ago. But Charlie Brown's answer is it all started with bicycle helmets, and now it's everyone gets a trophy. Kids mm-hmm. don't know what it's like to feel pain when they do something stupid. And he says, finally, stupid should hurt. So yes. there's there's just a lot of lot of wisdom within that. But let's move Absolutely. on a little bit. Is there anything more you want to say about uh, about pride at, at this well, time? Well, I, th- I think more to the point of what you just said, though, is we have taken a lot of the, the risk out of existence, and we don't we don't allow a lot of room for mistakes. And there is an importance in in making a mistake, and in, in the cliched phrase of learning a lesson. Um, and I, I think we're really doing ourselves a disservice when we when we remove that. Another way you you uh, address that issue is we are currently a culture focused on quantitative data. It mm. is human pride that stands in the way of accurate reflection and assessment. For as long as advancement advances are rewarded only with monetary or front page accolade, it will remain difficult to make genuine and meaningful human advancements. Well, we have lost in many ways our ability to be thoughtful, full of thought. Uh, a part of it is, the, is the, the data fog that we are bombarded with almost on a daily basis. It is the, the you know, I see it because being around college-age students for the last almost 30 years, I've seen the effect of computers. I've seen the effect of cell phones on these kids and the way that it has fundamentally changed the way that people actually think and take time to think. Um, there is no, no restful existence anymore where someone can just sit and, and thoughtfully reflect. Um, you know, I, my students just absolutely flip when I tell them stories about things like um, being in, you know, going to the isolation tanks in the 1980s in New York City yes, um, and what that experience was like. Or, or going out, I, I have a, one of my, my closest friends is a Cistercian monk in Massachusetts. And uh, in graduate school, when I was running into some real problems writing my dissertation, he invited me to come out for a weekend and, and spend time in the hermitage. Um, and I explain what that is to my students, and I actually show them some pictures that I took of the hermitage on the grounds there, and they're just amazed that we could spend any time just quietly reflecting. Um, you know, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that most of these kids are, are literally sleeping with their cell phones. Um, there is no time to have that kind of reflection, and that is the most important thing when it comes to the quality of our life. Mm. I should I should tell the people who are listening that I said the professor in reading this book I felt like I I was back in in class uh, with one of my <laughs> one of my favorite teachers, my favorite professors. That's how how I felt about this particular topic. Let's let's move on to uh That's a compliment. I really appreciate that, Father. Well, it's honestly uh, it's true, believe me. Uh let's talk about um, about lust, second of okay. seven, and um, much of uh, here you you say that in this chapter, 
uh, you rely on the issue of sexual renunciation, both historically and in the contemporary world, as well as the sexual dynamics of the contemporary world. And you begin with Origins and Clement of Alexandria's view that uh, our ideal is not to experience desire at all. Right. Right. And that was the ideal, certainly for, for somebody like Origin of Alexandria, who notoriously uh, misread the line about eunuchs going to heaven and, and had himself castrated, um, thinking that just no desire was best. But as I said earlier, the, the sin of lust is really about excessive desire. There is nothing wrong with desire in and of itself. It is desire to excess. And so I think that the, the, the distinction that needs to be made there is, is not just between lust and love, which, of course, is, a, is an important one to discuss, but it is a distinction between desire just as a human trait and lust being that desire which has gone now sort of overboard. And tell us a little bit about sexual um, renunciation in in the in the Bible, and for example, you point out that there is uh, a great deal to be learned from the story of of David and Bathsheba. Sure, yeah, uh, it, that's an interesting story, isn't it, Father? It sure is. Um, you know, it, 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 it's 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 an interesting story in that I mean, a good deal of my scholarship in the past has dealt with biblical exegesis. My, my first book was on the medieval Glossa Ordinaria, which is the, the medieval glossed Bible, which sort of aims to explain the text. And it's interesting that the glosses from most of the Church Fathers on the David and Bathsheba story, and specifically the, what, what, is, what is clearly a rape of Bathsheba by David, is largely glossed over. Um, it's, it's largely ignored. Um, we're told that God is unhappy with David, and that's about the extent of it. Um, and it, it, it's an interesting and, and troubling kind of story, because when we really study the story of David, um, in many ways, the, the, the reason why he's chosen to be king has little to do with his, his tremendous leadership or his tremendous leadership potential or his great feats as a warrior. Um, it has to do with the fact that he, he, people liked him. He was a nice guy. And um, the fact that he then, you know, quite clearly rapes this woman and then has her husband killed so he could be with her, is, it seems horrifying. And yet the, the, the canonical biblical text seems to really pass over it. Um, I believe there's one verse that's devoted to the fact that God was unhappy with David. You uh, write that um, you believe that lust has always been viewed as the enemy of serious thought, and it seems that for most of history, lust has been particularly grievous for two reasons. One, it distracts one from the rational focus of being, and two, it is an affront to the nature of human beings. It is. It, it, it is the sense that we're not in control of our own bodies. Um, it, is, it, is, it is a sin of incontinence. Um, most people are familiar with that word when, when they're talking about adult diapers, but incontinence refers to our inability to control our bodily functions. And lust is a sin of incontinence. 
Um, you know, and, and one of my favorite stories is a story that my graduate advisor used to tell. His, his uncle was a, a monk, a Benedictine monk in Minnesota, and uh, my advisor was training to be a, a, a monk himself. He was going to a seminary as a very young man, and all the boys were taken on a trip to go see and meet with the, the monk, his uncle, at the monastery. And um, it came out through discussion with these teenage boys that the monk claimed that he'd never seen himself naked. And the boys, teenage boys, 12, 13, 14 years old, were just astonished by this. They said, How do you, what do you mean you've never seen yourself naked? And he, they said to him, don't you take a shower? And his response was, yes, but I don't look down there. Um, and it was this, again, this sort of sense, this old sense of sexual renunciation or just ignoring or, or repressing um, any sense of desire that we might have. And, and Benedict, St. Benedict himself had much to say about this in his rule. Augustine writes, uh, quote, there are lusts for many things, but that physical lust, quote, is the lust that excites the indecent parts of the body. This lust assumes power not only over the whole body and not only from the outside, but also eternally. And you raise the question um, when you, you're writing about lust in popular culture, does lust not have a positive place in the contemporary world? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of these things where if we think about what the, the church went through in the Middle Ages, when um, the practice, practices of, of hard asceticism, of punishing the body to, to edify the soul, when the church finally sort of came down with the, the, the decision that that was a bad thing, that we, we shouldn't be doing that. And, and we're talking about things as, such as self-flagellation and wearing of hair shirts and um, you know, extreme fasting. And when the church finally said, that, that stop doing that. Um, God created you. Your body can't be evil. Um, and I think that that's really at the, at the heart of the discussion is, is this, we, we, we're back to this dualistic sense that what happens with our body is evil and is to be is repugnant and is to be just swept aside and repressed in a Freudian sense. And that is certainly not going to work because that's not who we are. That's not the way that we're built. Um, and if we continue to do that, we're really going in a, in a kind of a dangerous area. I mean, you know, this is given, of course, everything that's gone on in the last few years with things like the Me Too movement, um, with, with, with the current president and his supposed exploits with women and his claims about about activities that he had engaged in prior to being president. But I also remember when Jimmy Carter was interviewed by Playboy magazine in 1975. And he Professor, hold on. We're going to be taking a break. Sure. Now. I, know, I know what that story is. So I yeah. know it's going to take a little bit longer than the five seconds we have. So uh, let's, let's come back. We'll pick up there. <laughs> 